Hello, and welcome to the International Sonography Podcast, the podcast all about the occupation of diagnostic medical ultrasound all over the globe. I'm your host, Jamie Fujikawa. Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode 12 of the International Sonography Podcast. I'm your host, Jamie Fujikawa, and with me as always is Lorinda Andrist. One of the things I love most about getting to do this podcast is to get to sit down with the luminaries in our field, and today we have another one for you. If you've been in the world of sonography, you just know this person by Jean Lee, but Jean Lee Spitz is a name that uh, doesn't need much of an introduction. Jean Lee will tell us the story of how she started out minoring in math and chemistry and got her master's eventually in public health and the uh, route that led her to sonography. She is currently the executive director of Perinatal Quality Foundation, also known as the NTQR. Jean, welcome to the show. We are so excited to finally sit down with you. One of the fun parts for us is getting to know more about the people that we're interviewing rather than the professional side, but a little bit about their personal story, where they grew up, what their childhood was like um, before they were the sonographer or the educator. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Um, I grew up in West Texas in a town called Midland, Texas, which was a one-industry town, oil and gas. It was relatively small during my childhood, maybe 40,000, but very um, everyone I knew was either a geologist or an engineer, very uh, high-level school system. Um, I remember in seventh grade doing a paper about how a little leaf became an oil drop and got squashed. And anyway, um, so we learned about oil. I actually made a little story up and I had this little town of leaves that got uh, covered with mud and then with rocks and then got smushed and then became oil and then they drilled. And anyway, I got a C on it. (laughs) Really? I was going to say you should have published it. (laughs) It was supposed to be a science paper. Anyway, we studied oil. Well, I was probably the only sonographer, you know, that studied oil and gas in the seventh grade. But I had two brothers, so our lives revolved around Little League and, you know, boy things. Sure. I was, I loved the outdoors. We'd fish in the summer and camp. And I was a Girl Scout and a Girl Scout camp counselor. So for at least two summers, I had machetes and I walked around with machetes and snake sticks, killing snakes in the Big Bend area. Nice. <laughs> um, so my childhood was was good. Like I said, it sort of revolved around my brothers, um, but I love camping and outdoors. And What did so, your parents do for a living? Um, my mother was mostly at home and um, my father worked in the oil industry. He was a land man. He did sort of the legal work, figuring out who owned the land that they wanted to drill in and how to buy and sell it and stuff. So he was, he was a land man. <laughs> so after you were camp, what did you say you were? Was it Girl Scouts or? Yeah, Girl Scout camp counselor in the Big Bend area. They had copperheads and rattlesnakes. So literally we did walk around with machetes and snake sticks. From somebody in the Pacific Northwest that doesn't have a lot of like poisonous snakes and scorpions. And uh-huh. You're the kind of people you need around when you notice if one of those, we need a gene around with her machete at that time. <laughs> uh, and I can tell you another, we had tarantulas in my backyard because it was West Texas. And I don't like to garden to this day. And I was talking to my mother one time and I said, you know, I don't know why I just disliked digging in the dirt. She said, that's because she dug up a tarantula 
nest when you were a child and you had tarantulas running up your arms. I went, oh, that's why I hate to dig in the dirt. <laughs> I am not a gardener. Well, that kind of a PTSD, it would be <laughs> sure. Yeah. My father uh, coached Little League with George H.W. Bush, by the oh. way. And I, yeah, I knew George W. Bush when he was a child. Oh my and gosh. We had hot dogs in his backyard because we they were on the same Little League team. But anyway, that aside. Well, uh, that's a huge thing. <laughs> that's not, oh, yeah, by the way, I knew one of the presidents. He was my neighbor. No, I, I knew two of them. And actually... At one point, uh, when I was in Rochester, um, my, a friend of my mother's wanted George W. Bush was not married, and I was coming home for Christmas, and they said, well, let's get Gene and George W. together because George W. is coming home. I mean, Gene's coming home for Christmas, and George W. had moved back into town. And so I came home Christmas, and I said, they, mother asked me on the phone, do you, wanna, do you want us to arrange a date with George W.? And I said, Sure you know, be interesting to meet him. This was actually before his father was president. He was, his father was, I think, UN at that point. But um, anyway, I came home at Christmas and um, I said, you know what, what happened with that blind date with George W., you know, that uh, Betty George, who was a friend, was going to arrange. And mom said, well, your dad vetoed it. And so I went to my dad and I said, why did you veto that? And he said, the son is not nearly the same um, level of person that the father is. I vetoed it because I don't want you going out with him. He's a, and he was pretty wild at that point. He was before he met Laura. He was yes. just not. <laughs> anyway, my father would not let me go out with him, which is just as well. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. I mean, would not have gotten long, long term. I feel like we could spend a whole hour just talking about that kind of stuff. But, you know, wasn't anyway, meant to that, that was Midland. That was, that was West Texas, Midland. But um, the other thing that probably relates is in the seventh grade, I was Marcha Dimes chairman for um, my junior high or whatever. And um, they took um, all of us to Dallas to this seminar. And I remember it was one of those seminal experiences. I remember sitting in this room and they were talking about Down syndrome and they showed this video of a family that had a Down syndrome child and how um, they wish they'd known more. I just remember the mother and the child sitting on a porch and, you know, my heart just went out. I was just like, this is where I want to spend my life. I want to help these people. And this is where I want to spend my life. And that was truly, from that point on, I was going to study birth defects. I was going to be an MD, PhD, and study birth defects. From seventh grade (laughs) through, um, you know, that was my goal, was to study birth defects. It just hit me that hard. So that was your poignant moment that kind of... Yeah, and that was my, you know, that became, you know, sort of, my focus and my passion. So what can you kind of tell us, bridge us from there, from when you started to go into education to the medical field or how you got to sonography? Yeah, I went to um, my first year in, I went to Duke and I was pre-med, transferred back to the University of Texas for early love. Forget that. Okay. (laughs) Yeah, and our path leads us. That's part of it. Anyway, um, I did, I was pre-med and I graduated from college in three years. And um, then I had married young and 
I didn't think the marriage would handle medical school. You know, it was just um, one of those things. His father was a doctor, wanted him to be a doctor. And we took organic chemistry together and I made an A and he made a D. So it was one of those things that if I went to medical school and he didn't, it just wasn't going to work because we'd been through that with organic chemistry. (laughs) Anyway, and that actually the marriage didn't work, but I didn't know it at the time. But anyway, um, I went back to graduate school in nutrition uh, for a year and then we moved. He finished uh, college and we moved to Jackson, Mississippi. And his father, who was an OBGYN, introduced me to Dr. Henry Theed, who was chair of the OBGYN department in Jackson, Mississippi. And I became his research assistant. We were sitting at, um, we'd had dinner with the Theeds, who were family friends. And Dr. Theed and I were sitting next to each other. And he started talking about this man that he had heard talk about fetal nutrition And I had just done a paper as part of my graduate work in nutrition on fetal nutrition. And I had studied the same man that he had just heard talk. And so we just bonded over Dr. Winnick, Dr. Myron Winnick, who is one of the first uh, people who studied reduction in brain matter associated with malnutrition and pregnancy. Wow. And, um, And Dr. Theed offered me a job that night as his research assistant if I wanted to work with him. So I became, he became my mentor and um, I became a research assistant in the department of OBGYN at the University of Mississippi. And um, I taught, um, there was a very active midwifery program there. Um, I worked with their education program, teaching nutrition. And then we were doing a study on pesticide levels in pregnancy and how they might affect birth. So I would go out with the nurse midwives to um, the rural areas, and they worked with the granny midwives and the patients. And uh, we had talked to them about care and nutrition. I would take a blood sample for a pesticide study. (laughs) And yeah, and I did that for like six months to a year. And actually later when I was working on my public health, my master's in public health, they gave me credit for that period of time because I was really working in public health with the midwives in Mississippi. This was in 72, I think. Dr. Thee got interested in ultrasound and he asked me to do a literature review, you know, just read what had was coming out from Ian Donald and others from England. I got very interested in it as well. And Dr. Thee went to radiology and suggested that they buy ultrasound equipment for the medical center and they saw no future in it whatsoever. We're not the least bit interested in it. So Dr. Theed bought his own equipment, and while it was on order, he asked me if I wanted to go to Denver, where uh, Ken Gottesfeld and Joseph Holmes were, to learn how to use it. So he sent me to Denver for, I think, four months, three months, four months. So I knew that was my education in ultrasound. And in Denver, they had Unirad, and when I got back to Mississippi, he had ordered, he had ordered Picker, So I literally didn't even know how to turn the equipment on. (laughs) And I remember there was a nurse, uh, one of my first days back, I was going to show 
uh, somebody had figured out how to turn the equipment on and I was going to scan and show somebody the uterus and a nurse volunteered. And I kept looking and looking and I said, I can't find your uterus. And she said, oh, I didn't know you wanted to see my uterus. I had a hysterectomy 10 years ago. <laughs> oh, it's, like those, it's like those people leave you looking for the leftover and then they're like, oh, yes, you're looking for yes. that it's removed. <laughs> but, but it was so, I mean, you know, I, I think at that point, we were such a team, you know, I was teaching the attendings, the residents, Dr. Thede, you know, we just had this small room and everyone would come in and gather around and we'd look at something. And then we eventually started scheduling patients on a regular basis. Um, Dr. Thede was one of the pioneers in amniocentesis for maturity. And so we were doing a lot of amniocentesis, but those were the days where you'd just make a mark, you know, and then they would go home and then they'd come back the next day. And, and one of the residents one time, um, I, they pulled me, I went toward labor and I went to labor and delivery to do an amniocentesis. And one of the residents sort of handed the needle to me and said, do you want to do it? And I went, no, 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 no. <laughs> I mean, it was, those were those, er, those were the very early days. And Talk about a stab in the dark, literally. Yes. And I think even, um, I mean, the fact that I started in an OBGYN department, I think if it had been in radiology, there would have been more of a hierarchy. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I was, you know, a research assistant, you know, sort of jack of all trades, just sort of one of the team. So it was, um, but we all learned together and I loved it. I mean, I started doing that more full time. And then um, Dr. Thede moved to Rochester because that's where he was from. And he became chairman at Strong Memorial University of Rochester. And I was going through a divorce about that time. And um, he called me and said, I have a resident, Chuck Holer, who's very interested in ultrasound. Do you want to come up and work with him? So um, I moved to Rochester because uh, Dr. Thede was still my mentor. You know, I still... Um, but then I started working with Chuck Holler and Harold Fox, who were both finishing their residencies at uh, University of Rochester. And at Rochester, um, very quickly, we had a full patient load. I mean, we were doing 12 to 15 a day, you know, just we were doing OBGYN, everything. Um, I was a first sonographer. They hired another two by the time I left. And we all tried to take, um, they gave us a certain number of hours a day to do outcomes, to go look at the delivery record, look at the medical record, find out what had happened. And so we were right, we were doing, we were doing research in papers at the same time that we were um, working as sonographers. And um, and Gramiak, Dr. Gramiak was downstairs in radiology at that time, but he had started out doing primarily cardiac, and they had just started to do a few abdominal patients by 74, 75. I mean, it still had not gotten started in radiology at that point. You know, it was big yeah. in OB, and the radiology departments that did have it were doing primarily OB. But my experience was going from an OB department to an OB department. So the other thing about that period of time, Joan and I were talking about this the other day, we were so new. I mean, nobody knew what we were doing. If you went, you know, at that point, uh, if I went, if I was dating somebody or went out with somebody and they asked me what I did, 
I hated it because <laughs> you couldn't define it. Well, now I'd say, well, we do ultrasound. They say, well, what is that? Well, we take pictures of babies. Well, tell me about it. You know, tell, and you know, whoever my friend or my date would be going, oh no, not again. You know, do I have to listen to this again? So you got to where you just nobody knew what you were. I mean, there was no name for what we were, and we were taking pictures of babies with ultrasound, but. Yeah. Um, you and know, then somehow ultrasound technologist or tech came up and that was, yeah, and we didn't want to use that. Yeah. And so it was just, um, it, there was just no name for what we were. And I remember Chuck Holler, this was moving along to like 73, 74. Um, he had, had uh, we were going to the AIUM meeting in Winston-Salem and, he said, you know, they're going to give an examination there. They're going, to get, they're going to start a registry. You need to take the registry. And I said, why? <laughs> you know, I mean, <laughs> no, I'm doing well. You know I'm doing well. Why do I need to, re- you need to take the registry. This is a new profession. You need to, pr- you know, you need to do it. And so he really pushed me. I think back on that, how dumb was I, you know, but uh, he sort of pushed me, and I took the registry the first year that it was offered in Winston-Salem. Congratulations. Yeah, and now, like, your number, like, one one through five or something. One ninety six. No, they didn't They didn't give us numbers in order. Oh, <laughs> well, that's not fair. <laughs> no, 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 they don't give you, they, in fact, I forget what Joan's number is. Mine's 196. There were 200 of us, but they didn't even use wow. the first, They didn't even use the first. They might have done alphabetical order or something. So, <laughs> Well, no, they didn't. Um, they, they purposely mixed it up. Um, so even the people who took it first, who were the instructors, yeah. have, have three-digit numbers. I don't think they used once or 100. I think they, I don't remember how many there were, but Joan has told me that story and they, they very purposely didn't give people one, two, three, four. You know, but just that explanation. I know we didn't. I didn't get <laughs> to hear that. It. But um, so, yeah. that's, so then you took. You were registered by. I took my registry. Seventy three or no? This was seventy four. It was seventy four. Yeah, and at that point they called us and asked us what equipment uh, we normally use because you they were moving all of this equipment into this area and you had to scan you know, scan a person and it was, it, you know, they'd you'd scan somebody and they'd say, well, is it vertex or breach, you know, measure the head for us. You know, it was, it was easy. <laughs> but, um, a lot different than what it is nowadays. A lot it's different. And then I, I, I actually did pilot when they did the written test. Yes. I did the written test. And then later I took the abdominal test and the physics test. So you've seen the later version. So, uh, yeah, I saw the later days in late seventies. Well, that's so funny because a lot of what we were thinking of asking you is how how did you go from sonography to your pathway to obstetrics? But it sounds like your pathway to obstetrics led you to sonography in turn. Right. Correct? Right. Yeah. yeah. I started in obstetrics. And so, yeah. And and now I'm ending up in obstetrics. <laughs> so, but there was a path between Rochester to going. It was like March or April, and there was a whiteout in Rochester. And it had been a very, very long day. And I walked to the parking lot and I couldn't get my car started. So I called, they said it would be a while before AAA could get there. Oh, goodness. And I thought, okay, I'll just go to sleep. And I thought, no, I'll freeze to death if I go to sleep. I walked back into the hospital and slept, you know, had them call me. Anyway, 
um, <clears throat> there was a sense that this is just wrong. I mean, growing up in Texas, I was sunbathing in March. I was not sitting in a cold car with snow coming down. <laughs> Why somebody come help me start it? This was just wrong. So I started looking for a job um, that would be south <laughs> and closer sure. to home. And um, there was a radiologist in Lubbock that I knew and that I met at different AIUM meetings because Rochester supported me to go to AIUM every year. Um, and he offered me a job at the hospital in, in Lubbock, Texas Tech Hospital in Lubbock, which was just two hours from my home, and said that he would teach me abdomen and I could work with him in radiology. Well, I went to Dr. Thede, uh, who was his chair, and I said, well, you know, I have this job offer in Lubbock, and it will be close to home, and I think I would like to go close to home. And he said, Jean, I will match you anything that they offered you. You are not going to work in the radiology department. You can, I'll let you go home, but not to that job. And I mean, seriously. And um, it was, it's interesting that he, he said, you have much more potential than that. And I don't want you, I don't want you going there. That's and a said, selfless thing for him to do. In uh -huh, and I said, well, and then what was so interesting, he said, he said, I will match whatever salary they're offering you. And I said, if you do that, you have to match it for my other sonographers too. <laughs> we all three got a raise. And um, I stayed for another two or three months. And um, then I saw an ad as a program director at the University of Oklahoma. And I flew to Oklahoma to interview. And I got off the plane. The sun was shining and it was just like, this is it, you know, this is home. And I went back to Dr. Thede and I said, you know, I've been offered a job as head of an educational program at the University of Oklahoma. He said, you can take this one. <laughs> I don't think he wanted to give us all another raise. <laughs> he also, I'm sure, didn't want to let you go, but he also wanted you to spread your No, he said, he, said that, he said that will keep you, he said, you know, you'll grow in there. And uh, he said that will be a good job for you. So... Um, I left my mentor um, and went to the University of Oklahoma. And that's how I got into education. How much longer did Dr. Thede practice? Did you obviously stay in contact? You know, I don't. I stayed in touch with him for many years, and I haven't heard. He retired, and I haven't heard recently, you know, what his... His mother, his mother and his father were in their 90s. And so I'm thinking he's probably still alive in Rochester. And I'm yeah, probably emailing Good me. genetics there. <laughs> yeah, good genetics. <laughs> but I haven't kept in touch with him as much as I should. But, so um, the program looked like, I mean, when you started there, it must have been like a little skeleton, so to speak. It was not. They, you know, Dr. Ross Brown was there. He was one of the, he was a neurologist who, who, got involved with the midline shift ultrasounds in the late 60s in Canada. And one of his colleagues, who's a radiologist, was head of the Department of Radiology at the University of Oklahoma, recruited Ross to come down. So he was a bit of a... Um, 
fish out of water in that he had never finished his residency. He was a neurology resident, but he really just had medical school behind him. And he was functioning as head of ultrasound in a department of radiology. And he was president of the American Institute of Ultrasound and Medicine. But when it came to promotion at the University of Oklahoma, he had more difficulty Yeah, mm-hmm. for reasons that anyone who's been in academic medicine appreciates. Yes. Um, but Ross was a character. He, and he had started a school of ultrasound in 1969 at University Hospital in Oklahoma City. It was the first formal school in sonography. Um, and he had taken three high school graduates and they were to spend two full years with him. And then he was going to give him a certificate in ultrasound. And two of those three were still practicing as sonographers when I arrived, you know, 10 years later. Um, But that was, he had started the school in 69, taken three high school graduates in. Um, But then he started doing what a lot of the pioneers were doing. And that is letting people come into their department to learn one-on-one. And so people would come for three months or six months or a year and um, would learn, you know, would stay there. Sort of like I had done in Denver. I went for three or four months. And a lot of, you know, you could do that in Denver and uh, Oklahoma City, San Diego, Philadelphia. Um, By the time I got there in 77, Ross had formalized it where he would take um, 10 to 12 RTs, um, every year. And that would be the class for that year. They'd stay one year. They didn't pay any tuition. They had to pay their own living expenses, but they would just hang out in the lab and learn ultrasound and then go back and get a job. But they had, he was taking only RTs, you know, in, um, and, the university got interested in taking over that program as a hospital-based program at the time. And the university got interested in taking it over. So that's when they hired me. I became a university employee as opposed to a hospital. Mm -hmm. Um, And there were some wrinkles when I got there, he had accepted a class and told them that their tuition was free. And in the meantime, the university had said, this will be the first class that will get university credit. So I had to negotiate free credits (laughs) for all of my my students. Oh, my goodness. It worked out. um, But we didn't have any textbooks. Ross was writing a textbook at that point, Mm -hmm. uh, but it hadn't been published yet. And so I bought a pathology book and basically we use the pathology book as a textbook. Hmm. And I, whereas at the hospital based program, Ross would just sort of, they just hung out in the lab. And then every once in a while, Ross would pull them in and give them a lecture. But basically they hung out in the lab was what they did in the hospital based program. So when I got there, I was trying to schedule physics lectures and, you know, OB lectures and abdomen lectures. 
And Ross, and I thought I was coming to help Ross with his program, but it didn't work out there. You know, he would sometimes show up and he sometimes wouldn't show up. And so very quickly I learned this was going to be more than just helping Ross with his program. This was going to be building. You were going to be putting a skeleton in this thing. Yeah. So, um, you know, we sort of built the program and um, we had um, – we had junior, we, before long, we had two classes. We had juniors in clinic two days a week, seniors in clinic three days a week, and then, you know, the opposite days were their class days, mm-hmm. and we developed the curriculum, and um, it sort of all fell together over the years. Um, so we got more textbooks over the years. There's one student, Ross um, printed a textbook, and I remember one year I was interviewing students for the program, and she said, you've seen a picture of me. And I said, oh, really, have I? And she said, yeah, I was a, I was a pair of twins that were in Ross um, Brown. <laughs> oh yeah, she was. A, but we used to have 200 applicants for 15 slots. You know, it, it became very, it was a very, very popular program. Yes. And, um, and was it RT required still at that point or no, not? Uh-uh. No, we would have about half would be RTs, but we, we didn't require that you be an RT. And so we were a bit unique in that respect. I think University of Oklahoma and Downstate were the two programs in Seattle U were the programs that didn't require, you know, that you be an RT. Although we did accept RTs and we had some people that would go through the radiography program at University of Oklahoma and then stay one extra year to do it. So with your program was an associate's or a bachelor's degree as the outcome? It was a bachelor's. Mm -hmm. It was always a bachelor's. So they had to have significant prerequisites to get in. Yeah. Um, They had 64 hours minimum to get in. Mm So, um, and that, you ask about the professional side. I think to a certain extent, um, the fact that I was in the College of Allied Health. And so I think that that um, led to my professional involvement to a certain extent in that even though we were an extremely popular program, we were often told, you know, you don't have standards. You know, you're not like OT, you're not like PT, you don't have any educational standards. You're, as a profession, you're nothing. You know, where is your research? Where is your, where are your, where's your scope? Where are your standards? You know, and, um, and so I think because I was in that environment, um, you know, some people say, why did you get so involved in, pushing for standardized education or pushing for standards. And you're like, because I got tired of asking where it is and not having anything to show them. Why? Feedback that people give you. Sometimes that feedback, although it's maybe not the best to hear, half of it is true and you need to do something uh-huh. about it. It is true. And that was such an issue. You know, I, and I told this story when Joan and I did that, the first education committee meeting I went to where uh, somebody stood up and said, we don't need ultrasound schools. You'll never be able to teach sonography in a school. It has to be one-on-one in a hospital. You can't do it in a school. So why do we need schools? And I was like, hmm this is the education committee. <laughs> you know, this, you know, 
know. They don't even have, they don't even appreciate. Like, the I don't know what's going on with this. Yeah. <laughs> and, and there was still, you know, when I, um, I was very, my first presidency of SDMS was in the eighties. And at that point there were like two groups and there was the education group and there was the other group and the other group sort of looked down on the educators because we were always pushing for education and standards. And this group, you know, felt like proprietary programs on the job training. This was fine. This is the way it worked for me. Why can't it work for everybody? You know, and it's like, and there were really, there's a lot of friction between those two groups, um, even through the eighties, uh, Wow. Yeah, I don't think we got to hear that side of it. So when did you and Joan, I mean, we've heard it from Joan's perspective. When did you and Joan first meet each other, kind of come together and start forming some of these professional? You know, I remember uh, Mimi Berman and I at at Downstate were very close in the 70s. Um, And Joan, what I remember about the first time I met Joan or talked to Joan, um, there was a board meeting. I was chair of the education committee in the seventies, I think. And there's a board meeting in Sandy Hagen Answers um, hotel room. And she was president of SDMS at that point. So that was more mid to late seventies. And of course I knew who Joan was, but I hadn't really visited with her or met her much. And for some reason we started talking and I said, do you want to have dinner? And I felt very honored that Joan was going to have dinner with me. And we went to a French restaurant. But that's when I met Joan is uh, dinner after a board meeting in Sandy Hagen Answers Room. And then I met Marie DeLang standing in line for at a hotel. And she had her youngest with her. And I sort of helped carry her. We introduced each other. We introduced ourselves at the registration desk. And then I helped her carry some of her baby stuff up to her room and then sat there and talked with her while she nursed her youngest. So, wow. There were a lot of babies in the beginning. So we're hearing about all these layers now. We've, you know, we went through the post-secondary education and the development of the, the program at the University of Oklahoma. Talk a little bit about NTQR and how that all came about. Well, um, you know, I'd been at the um, University of Oklahoma for, I started there in 77. So by 2007, I'd been there 30 years. And I think anything you do for 30 years, you're going to get tired of doing. And besides, but other than that, um, I, I was chairman of the department. I was doing less teaching, less um, work with the sonography students. It was taking me farther away from what I really enjoyed. And um, I had been the SDMS representative to the NTOC, which was the formation committee of the NTQR. So I knew the people involved. And I, I really didn't think I was going to leave and Lorinda, <laughs> you, you know, I really, they, they said, you know, I, they were looking for an executive director and they said, you know, I think a sonographer would be good because she would know the clinical side of it. And, um, I said, oh, I know some great sonographers and I recommended Lorinda and I rec- recommended Wayne Pursuit as two people they should look okay. at. Yeah. And I talked to both of them and, and encouraged them to apply and then I was at a meeting with 
Alfred Abahamid sitting in the back row. And um, anyway, he was asking me about the executive director. And I said, well, have you heard Lorinda would be great. Wayne would be great. And he, and, um, and then I wrote, and you know, I've sort of toyed with the idea (laughs) because I could, I could, you know, I could, I could retire from the university of Oklahoma and anyway, my apologies, Lorinda, but the more I thought about it, the more it just fit. I mean, you know, it was back, it fit, it, it was back to what I loved in the beginning, which was more research, more, um, more obstetrics, high risk obstetrics. Um, and I like the people involved and I was eligible to retire with full medical benefits. And what I was doing at OU at that point was just more administration. And I didn't want to be the person that they kicked out because thank you. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I was tenured. I could have stayed there forever. And, and that was, you know, it's interesting because I was tenured full professor at OU and I left to go to this group that at the time I started working for them, they had a debt for about $800,000. Oh, <laughs> I mean, in terms of security, it wasn't the best move um, because the sense was, their sense, which I agree with, was that um, NT was going to be important, but as long as it was owned by the Fetal Medicine Foundation in England, they weren't going to have the push to get it recognized by insurance companies and professional organizations in the U.S., that we needed the U.S. organizations, ACOG, SNF, SNFM, and ACR, to get involved and to take some ownership so that we could push it for the insurance companies and push it. You know. And now in hindsight, do you agree that that was necessary? Yes, I agree. I mean, it. Um, I think the early competition between FMF and between the English group and the U.S. group was unfortunate mm-hmm. and is still unfortunate. Mm-hmm. But I do think the U.S. group had an important role in getting it established in the U.S. Sure. I'm not sure, I'm not sure that could have happened. I'm just not sure that it would have happened as quickly because as, as, as soon as we sort of came out, uh, ACOG wrote a paper supporting it. Uh, I mean, it just seemed to... Get the ball. And then all of a sudden, um, in the very early days, I remember we'd get calls from different states where Medicaid didn't cover it, but that just went away. Just, you know, it just became standard very, very quickly after the U.S. groups got involved. The moment where you saw the child with Down syndrome and the mom on the porch and uh-huh. wanted to make an impact. I mean, you lined yeah. up with NT screening and and that's, you're talking about that impact on. Yeah, on- yeah. There's a lot of synchronicity in there. I mean, I look back yeah. on, on my life and there's just a lot of synchronicity. But <laughs> sometimes it takes that hindsight to like, I didn't know where I was going at the time, but all yeah. I mean, you know, I wanted to be an MD, PhD and study birth defects. How boring, you know, <laughs> it, as opposed to being a sonographer, which I never got tired of. I mean, I still spend at least one day a week scanning patients. 
you know, my entire time I was teaching at OU, they'd give us one day to do that. So, you know, mostly OB. I did some PRN in a radiology department just because I was teaching vascular, abdominal vascular in abdomen and you can't teach something you don't do Mm -hmm. well. So I did PRN um, at one of the radiology departments for 10, 12 years. Remember, I remember there was one time I was like, I really am having trouble with arms. And I went in on a Saturday and there were five arms on a Saturday. I was like, ah, oh, somebody <laughs> heard me. <laughs> I hate this Saturday. But I, yeah. <laughs> it's not like me with renal Doppler studies. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. I didn't like renal Doppler either. Every time I think about not liking something, I always remember that saying that what you resist persists. I'm like, well, I'm, I don't know if I'm ever going to like yeah. it. I better stop not liking it. It is so true. It the is universe so will bring it to me. <laughs> You do not know what's going to come in. Yeah, there was one, um, probably that renal Doppler, there's one patient that they wanted me to do renal Doppler on, and I could not find, there were no renal veins. I mean, there were no renal, and it turned out literally that his kidney, he had one kidney that was dead. The other kidney was being fed by a vein that came off his back. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. I was like, oh, my gosh. And they, <laughs> no wonder I couldn't find Yeah, it. well, now you're feeling better about yourself. You're like, that was not, <laughs> that was not textbook. Yeah. <laughs> no, that was not textbook. But that's, always, a, that's a write a paper up on that one type of case. <laughs> yeah, that was always interesting. But, um, yeah, basically, you know, I was, I was on, I was in the consensus conference in 80, the NIH consensus conference on ultrasound and pregnancy in 1983. I was a sonographer there because Chuck Holer was on there and he brought me in on that. And then I was editor of the journal twice. I was chair of the JRC DMS once. I've been on the AAUM board of governors twice. I was on AMA CAHIA twice. I was president of SDMS twice. Oh and I've been involved in the AIU and BioFacts for years, <laughs> over and over and over again. <laughs> well, I would say anybody that wants to learn a lesson and if they're feeling like they've done a lot, maybe sit down with some of these pioneers and hear how many times they've been on boards and what their resume looks like. You're like, okay, I'm going to keep working. Yes. <laughs> I'm going to put my head but down. I've loved every bit of it. I mean, it's good. I, yeah. I mean, the people you meet, and Linda knows it's people you meet and the discussions you have and it just... It's constantly learning and, you know, just seeing things change. Well, and I think years ago, you probably remember this conversation when we used to have a statement that the thing about sonographers is that we have this passion and it just spreads. And that's going to bring me to my next question is, so you have done so many things with so many network within the United States with a little bit of tendrils going externally. Have you ever been involved in the more global international experience of sonography? No. In that, you know, it's interesting. I haven't. Nothing else to do to your list. (laughs) (laughs) No, I would love to, but I just, I really haven't at one Wolfram meeting in that sonography is the least expensive of the medical imaging. And it's the one that's most widespread in terms of rural networks and, you know, hard to get to places. And yet sonography education is primarily U.S. and Australia. But in Europe, it's mostly in the medical school. It's mostly physicians. Yeah. Um, so, So really, we do need to export our sonography education. Absolutely. 
And we need to use this, the ability to connect so quickly. I mean, that's what people the world experts. The day. Yeah. yeah. When Joan was brought over from England, it was like, you know, a recommendation and this whole big thing. And in nowadays you could do a conference call, be on the phone, get a ticket over and be here very quickly. Um, mm-hmm. You know, or even hold conferences with with different countries and their organizations just over a Skype meeting and how how right. it is to connect. So I mean, we really do have a responsibility in that well, respect. Yeah. It was so interesting. Last year, I was in Belize in mm-hmm. May and was sitting there talking with this girl while I was waiting for the tram of where we were going to go. And I, she seemed like college age, and I was chatting with her, and she just finished her degree in biology. Um, from the university, and she was going to be going to Ecuador to study ultrasound. What were the odds of that, that I would have a conversation with somebody about that? And so I told her about our podcasting, because we'd done a few by then, and so she was intrigued. Well, and just to talk with Dale Sear and realize that how how now they're forming, you know, these these international umbrellas for these companies to try and connect the physicians, connect the countries that are just because beginning to get their first sonographers and allowing that to become an occupation within that field. It's, it's pretty, pretty amazing. And it just, it went to show me that if we wanted to talk about where we were going to, um, you know, see ultrasound expand internationally, we had to go to the roots of what we knew here and that maybe that was where we would start and then see what you guys did to expand it here and then what we can do to expand it worldwide and share this. Cause like you said, they can't bring an MRI, you know, machine out into the middle of the bush, no. but you can bring a, now a handheld ultrasound device and change the way that they practice forever. Right. You know, and, so. and you know what I've, I've learned in terms of education is I wish we had gotten more task oriented earlier. You know, now, like with NT, the eight criteria, nine criteria that you need to do a good NT. You know, I wish we had defined some of those elements of sonography quality earlier. I think we've, in, you know, I started teaching out of a pathology book. I think we spent a lot of time teaching pathology and physiology and anatomy and but we didn't teach the nuts and bolts of the, this is what it takes to have a good image, you that's know, right. and I think as we, we got more sophisticated with our education, that's the direction we went. And so they're doing internationally. They're figuring out, okay, what do we need to teach to do a basic OB? What are step one, step two, step three? You know, they're, that's, they're doing that internationally in a better way than we did initially, I think. Not only has there been a huge amount of change within our field, you know, since you started back in the 60s and late 60s and 70s, but now with technology happening so fast, I mean, we went through, you know, A mode, B mode, real time, you know, obviously color, power, 3D, 4D. Now we're getting into making things smaller, more portable. There's now, I just heard the other day when I... um, looked at, opened an email of the point of care ultrasound podcast, a POCUS and it's about development of point of care ultrasound and how much it's spreading and, and, and budding. And so what do you see, what do you see technology, how do you see technology having the biggest impact on our field now, including NT? Because now with NIPT out and everything, how do you see that kind of stuff expanding here? I I think there's always going to be a place for good sonographers. I think sonography itself is going to be used by a wide variety of people. And I think as a profession, we're going to have to be more inclusive than exclusive as it spreads. Mm -hmm. The 
there's always going to be a place for people who have that eye in that hand-eye coordination and who can visualize cross-sectionally, which is a skill that takes practice and time to learn. So I think there are always going to be people that are good at it and people that pick it up and play with it and don't do it well. And uh, so I think we're going to have to be more inclusive, but on the other hand, I think we're going to have to be more judgmental about who really deserves to be doing the scans and who doesn't. And it may, I don't know how to test that. Um, yeah, I was going to say like in an education, do you see people kind of testing into what their skills were going to, are going to be used at as a sonographer? Like, will you be better in research and education or will you be better in the clinical side? Okay, that would be nice. It would be nice if there's a way to test for that. Yeah. Um, I mean, that thing would have to be after some of the educating on, on basic anatomy and pathology. And yeah, I didn't know I would be good at scanning until we got into being an intern because we, I mean, besides lab, when you everybody yeah. the same, like, we don't even know what we're looking at thing to like, okay, let's see if you can do this protocol and get through this patient. You don't know if you're going to be good at that. Mm-hmm. Even if you're a valedictorian of your class, ultrasound class, you know? So, right. I mean, I've heard some people say that some, that some sonographers will be like radiologists. They'll just sit at computers, just reconstructing sure. 3D images sure. out of 2D. Um, some sonographers will actually be doing the hand-eye coordination and picking the images. Sure. Um, I mean, there may be breaks into the types of, of jobs that we do. Different roles. Uh-huh. Yeah, different roles. I think we'll continue to be specialized. Sure. I just can't imagine there's too much to learn. <laughs> and to be good at MSK and abdomen and, you know, the radiology sonographer who works in an all-inclusive lab and you don't know what's walking in the next day, it's very hard to be, or the next minute, it's very hard to be good at all of that. Yeah, the I mean, jack, jack of all trades yeah, it's very hard to be good at all of that. Yeah, for sure. And I think there'll be other people around um, PAs and others around yeah. that will be good at spe- at particular uh, exams. I think we're going to be bigger than just sonographers. I think it's going to be more of a um, sonography, right? About I mean, yeah, the world yeah. of using that ultrasound technology to to visualize people, but how many roles are within that, right? Right, all the way to me from researcher to PA type of. You know, right. advanced midwife. clinical, yeah, nurse midwife with ultrasound training. You know what I'm saying? There's yeah. all these little subspecialty buckets. And um, yeah. it's interesting that one of, in all the people we've talked to on the podcast, a common problem that we've started to hear, what is the problem? What's the problem that we need a solution to right now? And it happens to be clinical internships. Right. Internships. Right. How do you inspire people to want to take on this person? They're so busy. They don't, you know, even if you offer them money, is it worth their time and energy to try and have this student? And the answer, of course, is yes, it is, because that's how we keep our profession alive and keep right. the standard up there is really good training. What what do you see happening there? The ultimate answer is simulation, but there's not any simulation that's as variable and as good as patients. Sure. So, um, and that is very much a problem today. Sure. Um, people just don't get the clinical experience they need in sure. school. Yeah. 
and so much of your recognition of pathology comes from experience with it. Sure. I don't know the answer to that other than simulation has got to, there's got to be a lot of work put into simulation. Yeah, it has to be more than just anatomy. It has to be like patient care situational simulation. Right. I mean, and that, and to me, that seems like more stuff you would do as a student in school before you start your patient interaction or maybe in that the end of school into that first year of internship, but then of course, real time scanning. But like you said, maybe there's a shift in where do people go? If I scored really low on my ability to simulate and be with patients, but I'm top of the class in research and education, is that when I right. take that left, you know? Right. No. Right. And how much sonography do you put in PA or nurse midwifery programs? Exactly. And yet there's probably going to be people in those programs who will develop the eye and the skill and the interest to be good. Absolutely. We've trained yeah. medical students that I've been like, wow, you're yeah. actually for a medical yeah. student, you're really good at sonography. You should really yeah. consider sticking with OB and then, you know, building. Yeah, your- it's, it's yeah. going to get more complicated. Well, <laughs> right. Add to that then. So what are your thoughts about the advanced practice sonography? I mean, we have an advanced practice cardiac sonographer now. Hopefully that will uh, spread to the other levels of vascular and other specialties as well. I, I would love to see it do that. I think in the near future, it's still going to be uh, individual physician driven. I mean, a physician is going to name somebody an advanced sonographer and use them at a level that higher than their other sonographers. But many, many sonographers are functioning at an advanced level they're just not called advanced level sonographers. And it's very hard to sort, as we learn, trying to define an advanced level sonographer. It's very hard to sort the advanced level from the standard level because they're doing very much the same thing. And, you know, nuclear medicine has the same problem. They were talking about what is an advanced nuclear medicine person. And it's very hard for them to sort because they're functioning at a relatively high level. Yeah. Um, I think it's still, I would love to see it as an opportunity that people could go into and go to school in order to be an advanced level sonographer. But I think we're years from that. Number one, we don't have the schools in sonography that we need. And so it's very hard to talk schools into creating an advanced sonography program when there aren't enough bachelor level sonography programs feed into an advanced um at one point i thought maybe the bachelor's programs would become more the advanced sonography programs uh, and the proprietary and associate's degrees might feed into those um bachelor's programs that's a possibility but I think we're years away from... Also, that, that goes back to mandatory credentialing, right? I mean... Right. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's a tremendous problem <laughs> yeah. in that we don't have mandatory certification except within four states. Right. That's a huge limit, too. But, I mean, we do, as far as the cardiac sonographer, there are two advanced programs in existence. But as you say, we still need to gather the weeds from underneath to grow into a consistent level of education and certification. Right. You are so right, Miranda. Yeah. Well, and it doesn't seem before long that people are going to, just like you and I are doing, have virtual classrooms where, okay, can I have a virtual classroom setting where I'm taking on students from multiple countries, not just the U.S., building the standard of a bachelor program and being able to do this via 
you know, this, this virtual connection that we are able to do. It won't be long before people start to question, okay, well, how do you make a virtual program that's still up to the level of a bachelor program? And can you do that? I mean, that to me seems like something too, that people are going to be exploring as the years, you know, as international. And then then you get into internships. (laughs) (laughs) But that's what I'm saying. But if it all comes back to internships, is that really our rhino in the way? Is that really like something that's going to stop all, you know, people getting all these students, but what are the students going to do when they graduate? Are they going to find a place to, to go and real, get their real training, their hands-on training, that, that clinical internship? So I know you start thinking about like snowballing problems, yeah. but I mean, you guys have come so far, you've tackled so many problems. So I have no doubt that they can be tackled, but I think that that's even a more of a reason for the younger generation yeah. Yeah. to come in and make sure that they, um, try and help find a solution to these. Like how, how are we going to keep the structure, keep the standards and, and mm-hmm. then fix these problems that we can see coming, coming down the line. And we may see more specialization. I mean, we may see some things happening in cardiac and vascular that don't happen in abdomen or that or things that happen in OBGYN that don't happen. I mean, we may, sure. we're going to see more specialization. I Which think. happened in medicine, Which right? Is fine. And with doctors yeah. as well. Physicians started to specialize and the house right. stopped and people started to have specialty clinics. And Because and that's where the patient, I mean, the patients typically have one disease. Sure. <laughs> sure. <laughs> what thing they want fixed. You yeah. Know? So, yeah. Yeah. They don't need the jack yeah. of all trades. Exactly. Right. Yeah. 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 Well, speaking of the years ahead, and I'm not just talking about professionally, I'm also talking about personally, what lies ahead for, for Jean Lee in these next days? Um, I'll probably stay with um, with Perinatal Quality Foundation, with NT. Uh, you ask about, um, you know, NT in the range of, in the realm of uh, cell-free DNA. I think it'll st- it took many, many years to get it out there. It's going to take years to disappear. But in the meantime, we have a new genetics education program. We have a fetal monitoring credentialing program. We have a cervical length education and review cool. program. So, you know, the Perinatal Quality Foundation is expanding well beyond in TQR. It's interesting. I'm wondering as I think NTs will continue to be done, um, I'm I'm wondering if people will maintain their NT credentialing when they're no longer sending blood to the lab and it's no longer required. You know, if credentialing in and of itself will become a quality mark. Um, that's happening with cervix to a certain extent, you know, sure. the, the, cervi- the CLEAR program, cervical length education and review. Uh, a lot of people are becoming credentialed just as a quality marker. And yeah. so that may, it may persist as a quality marker, but not as a mandatory laboratory required credential. Yeah, but that may be up to the labs to making sure that if they if they want to run the highest quality lab, that they make sure that they're you know right. they, all have those individual. Yeah, yeah, those mini credentials. You know, yeah. yeah, you don't want too many of them, but for key stuff, it may be worthwhile. But. Yeah. Because some specialties, you can't just divide them up. Then you need to also make them specialized, which means proficient, right? Yeah. You know, OB as a whole is moving back to the first trimester. Sure. So, you know, picking up those things early is going to be key. Yeah. First first trimester fetal echo. People talk about critical measurements in OB. They talk about crown rump length and NT. You know, because those are first trimester Absolutely. and those are critical. You mm-hmm. know, that if you mess up on a BPD later, what the heck? You know, if you have a good crown rumpling, you can't, you know, it's, 
the critical measurements are the early ones. Absolutely. Yeah, it may. Which, I mean, speaks to NIPT, right? That's why they're doing it is to try and find out what is the earliest that we can try and and establish whether we're concerned about chromosomal so yeah yeah it's interesting I sit in sometimes I'll go to SMFM and I'll be sitting in a lecture and I'll think oh my gosh I'm gonna be gone before they figure this out (laughs) (laughs) but I mean it's so interesting it's so exciting to me I mean that's one way to think about your mortality is like oh yeah by the time they get that together I'm gonna be long gone (laughs) yeah no, but I mean, when they talk about retirement and on a beach, well, <laughs> no, but they talk about genetic, they talk about, um, activating genes in utero and how, acti- you know, genes are activated in utero and can show up like 50 years later. Sure. Um, you know, that it's generational. I mean, the new genetics, is just phenomenal. It's not just the genetics. It's when they're activated and that may have, that may be how you ate the first five years of life. I mean, it's really fascinating. And I sit there and think, wow. <laughs> you know? I think you might be impressed with how quickly some of it comes along because everything's just moving at super. I know. Right now, you know, because well, of the I, to develop something is so much easier now and it's just turning over so Yeah, far. I was looking at, um, you know, Joan and I are doing the history and I was looking at some of the, I think it was an article in 1990 in the JDMS. It was using a personal computer. And I was like, are you kidding me? <laughs> Such a funny thing to think about. Yeah. How fast things have moved until you realize we had articles in our journal in 1990 on how to use a personal computer. Jean Lee is obviously tremendously noteworthy in all the things that you have done. And so of all those things, what do you feel is your, like your most noteworthy accomplishment that you're most proud of? You know, I, I was at the SDMS award ceremony this year, and um, there are several OU students that won papers, that won awards in every year. You know, I, I think I'm proudest of the school because I think the school still has a vision that I have of sonographers in that we are team members who contribute to patient outcomes in an important way. And we shouldn't look down on ourselves. We shouldn't say, I don't know what I'm looking at. Uh, You know, there's nothing that makes me madder than a sonographer who apologizes for being a sonographer because Mm -hmm. it's just so, we are such an important part of the team and um, we should be proud of who we are and what we contribute, and we should work to our limits every day to make life better for our patients and for our team. And I think that vision of pride in what we do is still part of OU, and, um, you know, I think part of that comes from me, and I'm proud of that. So obviously one of the legacies you're going to leave behind is, is your footprint at, at the University of Oklahoma. Um, in life in general, over the things that you've learned through all your uh, weaving and winding to what's got you to now, um, what, what are some of the things that you feel like you hope to leave behind just about you and about what, pe- what you want people to remember about your purpose? Never stop learning and always be a team member and contribute to the best of your ability work hard. It's worth it. Working hard is worth it. Indeed. And you are such a testament to that. Jean, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. 
I'd also like to thank our listeners as well and join us for episode 13 when we talk with Miss Mary Carpenter. Mary was a colleague of mine for years in the maternal fetal medicine practice that I practiced perinatal sonography at. And she not only delivered my two kids, but has given me so much advice on life and being a mom and uh, being a professional. And I can't wait for you guys to hear her story and how she's now paying it forward, traveling internationally, training midwives around the world. So don't miss that episode. And until then, take care.